My guest today is the Managing Director of the Knowledge Group. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Always a professional, his deep knowledge, skills and customer service are unparalleled. Here's another one. He has a phenomenal energy and enthusiasm. His ethos is one of exceptional quality that improves the lives of all involved. Here's a third. He is dedicated to the future success of his business and the livelihood of his wonderful team. Ray is a motivated and driven business leader. Ray Ryan, you're very welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Ray, maybe we could start to share with me uh, where you grew up and what kind of childhood that was. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Walkinstown and was the product of a Christian Brothers school. I went to Sing Street CBS. Did me no harm. Uh, it was a bit. Of, it was a bit of a journey every day from Walkinstown right into the city centre. But the experiences that I had there and the people I met there have really my, some of my best friends in business are actually guys that were in Sing Street with me. Uh, it intrigues me every time in the broad uh, spectrum of companies that we would deal with, that the amount of guys I'd pop into who are ex-Sing Street. It had, a great, it had a great ethos at the time as a school. And while it wasn't one of the branded private schools, it certainly had its own influence uh, in the marketplace in Dublin. Well, funny, because I too went to CBS, but I didn't have a movie made about the school I went to. Uh, for people watching or listening to this, uh, there is an actual movie about, not, it wasn't about Sing Street, the school per se. It was a story it, 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 no. that centered around a kid that went to Sing Street. Sing right? Street. Yeah, who yeah. was trying to be different. Yes. I remember now. Uh, yeah, probably wasn't the best school in the world to stand out in the crowd. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you learned a bit about life in that area, yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about that because uh, there is... When I talk to my kids about how schooling I grew up with in the 70s, I think they think I'm just telling stories. I'm telling porkies. <laughs> Perhaps you could share a story. Not And by the way, this doesn't have to be about school, but just about your own childhood. The kind of things that you did that a 18-year-old right now would not recognise, would not understand. Oh, uh, well, certainly the kind of things we did to entertain ourselves are completely different. I don't think any kid would venture out with a magnifying glass and sit all day melting tar on the road and putting matchsticks into it to try and build a kind of a fort to play our soldiers with. I don't think they do those kind of things. So, so yeah, our entertainment, I'm actually today, it's meant to snow. And I've never seen any of the kids in the years I've been uh, rearing children make a slide. Yeah. We yeah. used to make slides in the winter and we'd wait for it to freeze and uh, we'd slide up and down all night long. And then our parents would have to come out and put salt on it because they would be desperately afraid somebody yeah. would slip the next day. Yeah. So they were just simple things yeah. that we had in those days, not yeah. as sophisticated as the guys have these days. Yeah. Just to be clear on that, when you say slide, are you saying that you went out the night before like we did and poured water onto yes. a portion of the street, right? At on the street, uh, yeah, yeah, and we tried to make it as long as we could, yes. and of course, the competition was who could get to the end of the slide without breaking their leg, yeah. Yeah, and you'd climb trees and all those kind of things oh, we butter uh, up. My, grand, my grandkids recently, I taught them how to play curb ball. Yeah. So just throwing a ball at the yeah. curb and catching it again. Yes, <laughs> I remember that now as well. We used to call that, was it? Kirby, I can't remember what we actually called it, but that was it. And you had to kind of hit it on the edge and, and the ball comes right back to the other side of the street. You tried to get nearer so you could get 10 and get back again to the other side and start yeah. again. Yeah. yeah they were um, I mean, oh, we, we could probably talk all day about this in terms of marbles <laughs> and bobblers and so on. But I'm really curious about, Ray, is what do you, how do you think those experiences, both in terms of how you played and your experiences in, in school, have made you a better, more resilient leader? Well, uh, I think there were a few things as I got to the teens. Uh, I, I, we didn't have things to hand in those days. So you either got something or you didn't, or if you wanted something, you had to figure out 
how you were going to get it because it wasn't to hand. So if you wanted to buy the latest pair of jeans or something and it just wasn't in the family budget, well, then you got a job and you mm. earned a few bob. Mm. Uh, 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 illegally, I would, might add, the submarine bar was the nearest pub to us. And at 14 years of age, I had a lounge boy job and mm. I was in there till nine o'clock in the evening time making my few bob. You mm. had to work. Uh, and once you got that concept in your mind that things just didn't come or just didn't arrive, that you had to work for them. That that probably was the first learnings that I had mm. about making your own money. Mm. I'm curious to know if there's anything you've had to unlearn in terms of experiences from those days versus how the world works today. Yeah, I've had to unlearn Things being instant, uh, you, you know, you're kind of when you're growing up, you want that, you get that, you want that. You want... Suddenly when you go into business and you try to develop something and you have a kind of a journey you're going to go on, you need patience, not only patience with yourself, you need patience with your team yeah. uh, because th proper things don't happen overnight. They're hard worked, they're... Uh, and there's ups and downs in that journey that you would be on. And to have patience with that journey is probably something that I've I didn't have patience as a kid. I just mm. I wouldn't read the manual. I would just get a toy and I'd open it. If I had to make it, I'd just go at it. And undoing that and trying to be patient and get it right. Uh, we have this strap line in, in, in our business that's right first time. And uh, right first time actually saves you quite a lot of money. If you can just have the patience to go at it, to get it right the first time. Interesting. Speaking of journeys, then maybe you could take me on, help me understand how you got from school to, to, to being where you, let's um, say to yeah. early career. Let's talk about that in terms of early career. Where, the bug, where you got bitten by the bug for business. Well, uh, this again for the generation, we, they won't really get this. My first job was uh, as a false employee in a stock control room. Uh, I had done my leaving cert and I had a constant uh, interest in just in business. I, my favorite two subjects were economics and English, not math, by the way. But economics was really good because it just made you look at the world a little bit better or with a bit more analytical frame mm. of mind. And of course, everything in my mind, everything to do with everything is being able to communicate and engage with people. So English was just a real language of interest to me. I also learned Irish and I was quite fluent at Irish as a kid because languages were uh, just interesting to me. I also mm. did drama, which was going back to don't stand out in a crowd. It was something I never told anybody in school that I was in a drama school as well. And I think all of those little bits uh, helped build my character and things happen when you communicate with people. And that was the first thing I kind of got mm. to. So I went after school to the College of Marketing and Design and it was a very weird thing because when I went there uh, in the fourth year, there were 40 students and in the third year, there were 15 students. In the second year, there was 35 students. And in my first year, there was 45 students. Mm -hmm. Now, I kept meeting the third years and fourth years for breaks and lunches. And I was saying, but you know, where are you going to get a job in marketing? Uh, well, you're not going to get one here. You'll have to go to America. You, you know, did this, they don't, they really don't get marketing in this country. And marketing wasn't a concept. It was something that people believed, oh, that's when you decide that the packaging should be yellow. You know, and it is so much more than that. It's, yeah. it's, such a, uh, it's such a broad piece of business. So that going to the marketing piece uh, just helped me develop my interest in, and it was very much a retail bent marketing environment. It was merchandising and marketing merchandising and packaging. And I know uh, I mentioned the packaging, but it also gave me a real view of there is a process behind a business. There's a mm. process behind everything that gets delivered. My first job from the force piece was in an electrical company, uh, Thor Appliances, if anybody would remember, uh, and I don't think the juniors would, but Thor was an amazing company in the electrical industry at the time. As equivalent to any 
up and coming gadget company these days. We were introducing microwave ovens, yogurt makers, uh, hair dryers, uh, roller sets, electric blankets. These are all new things that uh, every household wanted to belling fires. It was just uh, it was just a great period. And what really the entrepreneurial piece came out of working there and for example, when we launched Litton Microwaves, an American branded microwave, part of the promotional capacity there was that there was a set of microwave Delph that went with your microwave, but you had to fill in the coupon and send back to get your Delph. Of course, mm. in Ireland, nobody bothered doing those things. So invariably there was a warehouse with tons of microwave Delph. And a pal of mine and myself looked at this and said, this is a this is kind of complete waste. We could kind of do something with that. So we went and we spoke to the management team and we said, can we buy that leftover Delph? And we opened a stall in the dandelion market selling. So that was the start of it. And then they introduced uh, they introduced Connor hair dryers and uh, there was a Connor brush set that came with the hair. But you had to fill in the coupon. <laughs> no, there was. So we had Denman brushes which I didn't realize Denman brushes were oh, a state-of-the-art brush brand, but mm. we were selling Denman brushes in the dandelion market, not knowing what they were and wondering why are these flying off the, the, the table? Uh, yeah. So pricing and promotion and that, it, we began to learn that you need to learn about the product. You need to learn a bit yeah. more about what you're doing. And so those entrepreneurial days and dealing with the public in the dandelion market, uh, where there was every walk of life. Uh, yeah. There was people from York Street. There were people from Dublin Four, all coming in, some buying nooks and cranny stuff, some buying we electric blankets. You weren't allowed repair an electric blanket in those days. It was illegal to do that. So we just cut all the connectors off them and sold them as heavy duty blankets to the ladies in York Street. So you just had to have a bit of imagination, mm. I suppose. Mm. Uh, and it was, again, back to that point, money didn't come easy. You had to work to make money. So the work ethic and creativity and the marketing uh, lent me into just into the, the hard work ethic of the whole thing. My move out of the electrical business was into the electronic toy business. And that was the state of the art in the toy industry at the time. A company called Decca and Dennis Cahill and Co. They did nursery and they did toys. And I managed to get myself as in charge of the uh, the electronic toy section of the business. And I was the in indoor showrooms sales guy. And every retailer that would come in from the toy industry, the first place they would head to straight from first was to the electronic toy section because they were really all interested in this new stuff. So again, I didn't read the manuals. I just kept pressing the buttons to see what would work. Uh, and I eventually landed myself a role with Atari. Uh, and uh, Atari was the first real IT computer type tech job that I got. And that was at the stage when the Atari video game was being launched in the Irish marketplace. And then a year later, we launched the 400 and 800 Atari computers. Mm. And I really got interested in the computers, except I, I had a very, uh, I thought, I thought programming, this is what you had to do. And so one night when the first computer came in and I was setting it up in the showroom and everybody was gone home, I took out the little manual that came with the computer for the first time to read. And there was this program and I said, look, I'm going to key the program in. So at three o'clock in the morning, I'm still keying away the code into the thing. And eventually at half three, I get to the now press enter. So I pressed enter and all that happened was two lines went across the screen like that. And I said, oh, my God, this programming piece definitely isn't for me. But the concept of what a computer could do and the efficiencies it started to bring, uh, that, that really got me. Mm. Uh, uh, while the toy thing was good, we uh, moved out of the toy business and the Atari business. Eventually, I moved into a company called Gayburn Distributors and not the TV Gayburn, but Gayburn Distributors 
was Gay was the uh, managing director of the Atari business and he set off again on his own, another entrepreneurial guy and an influence, a huge influence on me. And we set out to actually market games for all computers as opposed to games just for the Atari computers. And that was a real interesting thing going around the country, selling them into hi-fi and TV and computer stores. And it was at that stage the Amstrad arrived and there was a bundle of cassettes that came with your Amstrad pack. So your computer, your little tape recorder and your bunch of cassettes. And in one of those cassettes, there was an accounting package. And that accounting package happened to be the very first Sage accounting package written oh. by a guy called Graham Wiley, uh, who hadn't yet built up the Sage business, but had uh, had made contact with uh, Alan Sugar because they both had a, the same rabbi. Hmm. Uh, so in the context of Amstrad looking for a complete package of software to sell with their computer, he threw in the accounting piece. And when all those Amstrads sold, Graham got into his car, traveling around all the computer stores going, if there's any questions on the accounting package, phone me. And that's how Sage began. Wow. I'm fascinated, Ray, with what you've been telling me about this journey, this entrepreneurial journey that it doesn't come from nowhere. And what you said about not reading the manual. And I think that's sometimes that's seen as, oh, just, you know, RTFM, read the manual. But I actually think it's way more important than that, because, for example, when you were talking about the hairbrushes, what was the brand again? Denman. Then man, that was it. And you said, we were looking at these things flying out the door. Well, that moment, that moment of recognition teaches you way more about supply and demand than any book can. Just seeing that and going, why is this happening? Ah, brand. There's so much in that to unpack in terms of the power of yeah. brand, recognizing yeah. what sells, how to position, how to place it, how to use it as a leader to bring people in. All of these things that you just... You could be studying a book and get it intellectually, but you don't feel it. So I'm a huge proponent of hack it, figure it out. Then if you're struggling, then go read the manual. <laughs> but maybe I'm just justifying my own behavior too. So I don't yeah, know. No, you do have to have a sense of these things yeah. as, as much as reading about them. I mean, yeah. theory and practice are two different things. You can read a book about golf all day long, but the minute mm. you get on that tee box, Anything you've read goes out the door because when you swing first time down, you're going to miss the ball. So, uh, you know, theory and practice are, are so I got a lot of practice in those days, which was, yeah, to, which was to my benefit. Mm. Of course, the other just in relation to business and why I had that period of time when I was driving around the country in the light ace van with my docket book and my sign your order here book going onto the phone that evening, calling out the orders back to somebody, somewhere back to get them assembled. So that somebody would send them out. And so that somebody would raise an invoice, uh, but I have to go back at my docket book because they wanted to make sure the docket book had a signature on it. I was all of that manual effort and having worked in stock control and then stocking in, in a warehouse, know, knowing all the paperwork that surrounded the movement of goods, it was when I started to see accounting software and not just the ledgers, uh, the actual business operational type software, like keying in a sales order. Mm. That started to tell me there's a better way of doing all of this. Uh, and that's mm. what excited me. This is going to improve somebody's life. Uh, and it's a bit like when we first went out with ledger systems we uh, and you created an invoice. You really were saying to somebody who had pen and paper and was writing it down and hand writing an invoice, look how quick your competitor can get their invoices out the door with this computing system. And look, the statement just happens after that. Uh, and the other figures just happen after that. And so you were changing somebody's life. And when you mm. went in and you showed somebody how you could use sales order processing and purchase order processing to properly maintain your stock control so that all of that pushed straight forward into an invoice that went out the door. Uh, again, you were saying this is easier. This is going to improve the way you do business. Uh, and that's been really the excitement. If you think about the journey I'd been on, particularly in the electrical and electronic side of it, everything that came was just changing the way people did things, changing the way people made yogurt, changing the way people cooked. And now we're changing the way 
business can operate. Uh, and when you when you look at now, when as we're in the ERP space, uh, it, and it encompasses now the complete business uh, from a software perspective, that gets really exciting yeah. as to what you can deliver yeah. and the efficiencies you can bring. Yeah, it brings up something else though as well, which is why founders can be really successful in sales without any necessary, any formal sales training and where they can often struggle to scale themselves and replicate that because you had the experience of the ledgers and understand that, that how time consuming and painful that was. And therefore you can speak with authority and conviction, whereas somebody fresh coming out of school who's never been down that road can't in the same way all they can do is talk about the product and they can't talk about the experiences or necessarily relate to uh, prospects in the same way. I'm just curious to know if you've had that experience where it's been easy, not easy, but it's been smoother for you than trying to replicate that selling within your own business. Uh, well, they, this term I use is, it's, you know, uh, what letters are after your name? And I say, well, most people that do well have a QBE after them. And to me, that's qualified by experience. Uh, and that, that really does say a lot. Be, uh, not that I'm knocking in, uh, people who would come out of college and like we've some college graduates who joined us and they are amazing. They're amazing in terms of some of the skills they have and their ability to learn very quickly. But then bringing the theory that they've got to, to the practice. I've been very fortunate, Paul, in, in my people. Uh, but yes, what you what they don't have is the building blocks mm. of where we are. Their building blocks are starting here and I probably won't be around. But in the next 30 years, their experience will count from the building blocks that they have. And that's really important because it is all about evolution of everything, like evolution of you as a person, evolution uh, as a product, evolution as of an industry. So uh, that evolution piece can only be done by the building blocks that are there. And all you want to keep doing is making things easier or making business better. That's all you're trying to achieve as you do it. That's actually quite profound. I know it's easy to say, but it's actually quite profound because I think we often lose sight of that, of what sales is about. It's not about transacting a product. It's about, as you said, it's about making life better and simpler for people. Well, there Tell has me. to be an approach. Sorry, Paul. Sorry for There has to be an approach to that selling thing because, yes, I've been in the fast moving goods piece, which is move the goods fast. But when you move out of that into the consultative relationship piece, I have a saying for the guys in work uh, that just keeps everybody focused as to where my mind is. And that saying is, if you focus on the outcome, the income will look after itself. Oh, I like that. I like that. If you focus on the outcome, the income will look after itself. That's and it actually does. a wonderful soundbite. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, soundbite. It's actually quite profound. I love it. Yeah. Tell me, in terms of who you are today, who has inspired you the most to become that um, person? I, I, yeah, I, I, again, it's always obviously people. From an entrepreneurial point of view, Gay Byrne was my first sales manager. Uh, and Gay came from ordinary background like myself, but like I, what he had achieved with this Thor company, it, it was amazing. And, and then it was all singing and dancing and he decided, I'm going to go again. And he jumped into the uh, computer space and I jumped with him and then he said, I'm going to go again. And we jumped into the Gay Burn distributors and jumped with him. And that sense of not being afraid, go and start yeah. something new, was certainly drilled into me very young by him. And I actually had interviews for very nice big companies like sharp text and i would have had a lovely job but i never would have had the raw edge piece that i got from him uh which was fantastic uh i also was very fortunate my my father-in-law was a founding smurfit director a guy called dick well 
affectionately known as Dick O'Neill, but Richard O'Neill. Uh, and Dick ran not only his own company's Boswire and that, but he ran the Smurfit plant in Milltown. And he was engineering as a background, but again, an entrepreneur. And the one thing he taught me, uh, it was very funny because uh, I was talking to him, we're going to do this and I'm going to try that. And he said, you know, honestly, two things, Ray, two things you've got to remember about business. First, any idiot can start a business, but it takes a whole heap of work to grow one. So that was the first thing that I got. And he said, there's two things in life that will kill you if you don't have them. Uh, one is cash flow and the other is enthusiasm. He said, you can always manage cash flow, but if you lose enthusiasm, it's over. Mm. So that's actually, yeah. Yeah. And describe for me when you say enthusiasm, give me some sense of where, it, certainly in, in your own world, enthusiasm where is the fire in that where is it coming from what's it attached to well it's a, it's attached to a belief that's really if you don't believe like entirely believe in what you're doing and what you're doing is you know not so much that it's right you can make mistakes that's but the where you're trying to go with something and what you're trying to achieve and if you can visualize and see what you're delivering for example paul we have a product in our portfolio and we call it connections and it's a middleware product, and I don't want to get too technical, but it sits between EPOS systems and accounting systems. And we got involved in it because at one point in time in our world, we were in an engagement by where we were looking at a retailer who had quite a number of convenience stores. And what I saw was that they were pulling reports out of a point of sale system. Then they were giving them to a, a person and a bunch of people, and they were rekeying them in to an accounting system. And I thought that's really odd. And then they were getting all of these delivery dockets and they were then getting paper invoices and they were sitting there going 10, 10, 6, 6, 6, 6, and then I'd key that up. And I kind of thought this is not, this, there has to be an easier way than this. Mm. So we went down the road of creating a product that would take all of the transactions out of the point of sale system, manage them, sort them out properly, map them to the where they should go properly and just press a button and then, and then in they will go. And mm. then we would take all the delivery details electronically and we would be, were able to get the invoices electronically and we had the software going six, six, nine ninety nine, nine ninety nine, because that's what software can do. And then if you're happy with it, then hit that button and post that straight in. And that's what we call connections. And we started this and uh, we had a customer and we got it to work and I thought this is definitely something. And I don't know how many board meetings over five or six years after it that I was, look, stop wasting money, stop wasting money. No, I know, no, I know this, I know that. We now have this in over five or 600 stores in the UK and Ireland, uh, particularly focused on the convenience store sector, mm. particularly where there are customers, like in the UK, we have customers with 80 stores, 50 stores. And genuinely, Paul, if we tried to take the software out, they'd lynch us because they're not going back to manual processing of this yeah. volumes of data. So, uh, so I could visualize and see the benefits that was going to bring. Yeah. And I believed in my heart and soul that this would work. And if it did work, people wouldn't go back. So it's a bit like, oh, I'm writing the pen and the invoice thing. And I look, you can actually, the system will create the invoice for you. Mm. Uh, oh, I'm never going back. Uh, and that's mm. that belief and that enthusiasm to drive that, to not say, no, I remember somebody saying to me, well, do you have a plan B? I said, no. I've only plan A and that's it. And that's the one we're going to do. And now we subsequently have a product that next year I'm going to create a business out of as another group company. Mm. So, um, yeah, yeah, I drive and enthusiasm and belief. I think they're fundamental from an entrepreneurial point of view. If you don't have that, it's pointless starting because you're going to get mm. loads of downs. It's just going to be months when you look at it and go, oh, gee. Or when you look at the software after six months and somebody's 
just gives you one problem. And then we, I see everybody goes, I told you so. Told you. But you just have to get over the problem, get over the problem, get over the problem, keep going. You mentioned earlier that you had been offered nice, comfortable, secure jobs in well-known companies, but you decided not to do that. What is it in you that chooses the hard road over the safe road? You can actually see the difference you make. You, in a smaller environment, particularly in most of my lives have been in, most of my life has been in startups, either my own startups or other people's startups. So that thing about you've created something that wasn't there last year and now it's something versus jumping into something that's well created, well done and dusted and all you're doing is oiling the machine as opposed to creating something probably is the difference in my mind as to what excites me and what doesn't. Some people are absolutely brilliant in those environments. They love the administrative process of it and making it work and tweaking that and tweaking this and doing that. And that's all very important. Mm. There also is a huge importance in people looking at what can I do next? If you couldn't do what you're doing currently, as in from a work point of view, you had to close the door. What would you do with your life now? Oh, now, as opposed to going back and saying, what would mm. I have done? What would I do now? Well, okay, I have a difficulty in that visualization of me doing nothing. But if, if I was, what I would hope for about where we are at the moment, the business has grown quite well. We're now a team of nearly 40 people. I can see it going to 60 people in the next three years. I would like to be in a position that the people who have built this business with me continue to build what they want to build out of it, that I can step back from it. And then if they ever need some building block advice to sit at the side and offer that, uh, in, I've had, I've just had the huge luck to have some very good, influential, well-known names. And I don't want to name names now, friends who would be household names in business. And I've been very fortunate to end up in their companies and be their friends. And I remember sitting down with one of them saying, you know, you know, you've got to get the retirement thing in place or you get the retirement thing in place. And I thought about it and uh, with him and he was talking to me about all the different angles and all the different things and kind of having gone back and thought about it and came back and I said, you know, I tell you what definitely doesn't suit me. Tell you what definitely doesn't suit me that if I sold the business on to our larger competitor and that larger competitor then took 15 or 20 of my key people and said, you're not needed. And I'm sitting in a bar somewhere going, oh, well, I'm okay. And the people that helped me build the thing from scratch are not okay. That's mm. not okay with me. Yeah. It's just not okay. No, I understand that. I, and I get that. Let's say, for example, you sold it to the employees. There's a key employee, yes. someone of an MBO, and they're running it. And so, so that's a good outcome. You can see, well, look, they're safe. They've got a future ahead of them. Now I can go off and do something else. I'm curious to know what that else would be. And there's no advisory. Your links are completely broken with the business. Oh, Every okay. it's, it's running independently with the people in there. Okay. Now, okay. You, now you need, because you, you come across as somebody who you, you're not going to be tending to the flowers in your garden. When it comes no, well, I, well, I'm a Camino walker. So, okay. so I've actually this year we finish Myself and my sister-in-law, we finished the French route on the Camino. Uh, so this whole thing of putting a haversack on my back and heading off uh, to the great unknown, I definitely would go walking. Okay. And I think, uh, I think the point about it that, that works for me, there are very few times in your, particularly if you get into business and you get into the working life, uh, you can do this if you're lucky when you're young, but... I didn't get that chance to travel when I was young, but there's very few times in your life where you're not having to be somewhere at some time, like be here at 10 o'clock for this. I have another meeting at 11 o'clock. Uh, I have to go and collect the kids. I, you've got mm. to be, suddenly you put a haversack on your back and you're in the middle of North of Spain and you don't have to be anywhere. Mm. And you can arrive at a little small town and as long as there's a, as long as there's a hostel or a small hotel or you can decide you're gonna stay there or move on. That sense of freedom versus the very organized life that we lead, like that piece, because it's, there's lots of time to reflect and take in. Uh, and you need that 
type of times. So that's why I actually do it. So the kind of things I like to do, I like to ski, I like to walk and I like to run. They all sound very solitary. <laughs> but mm. I've done a couple, I've done, well, I've done four marathons, uh, oh, wow. which I stopped before, just before COVID. So I am okay about keeping myself, you know, trim mm. and whatever uh, and fit. But I definitely need to get away from that madness to get a sense of reality, to go back to the madness. I'm curious because marathon strikes me. I've only ever done one. And so I know what goes into it. And it's, there's an extraordinary amount of focus and dedication and pushing through pain barriers. Not even so much in the marathon, but really in the training. The training. And, yeah. yeah. And I'm curious to know, when you talk about getting away from it, are you getting away from something or in some respects are you getting away from yourself? Are you using it to quiet and still your own mind because you're a very active person both in terms of your downtime and your uptime so the, there must be something in you that you kind of go okay i need to get out of this momentarily just to re recuperate and recover i'm asking by the way i'm not just yeah, curious no perfectly correct um you know like you need a break from exercise your mind needs a break from activity i've done the mindfulness stuff and i've you know i've and I go there and I put it to you this way, Paul, 15 years ago, I would have laughed at all of this. Now I would actually say that school children should have a mindfulness class mm. during the day, a day of time, a moment for them to stop and reflect or even not reflect, just do nothing, do mm. absolutely nothing because we're busy people. And the amount of voices in our head is crazy. Uh, and then when you get into business, the amount of other voices that keep coming at you are also crazy. So yeah. you do you you do need to step back a bit and not even listen to yourself. Yeah. Now, it's uh, actually, uh, you're right on that point, by the way, you're talking about busy. It's even crazier that nowadays. And I find I'm as guilty as this more so than many people is that when there is a moment of downtime, my hand is reaching for the phone for stimulation that where, you know, 20, 30 years ago, downtime you were alone with your thoughts and therefore you didn't need to seek it in the same way now you as you said i think you have to consciously build it in you talk about school by the way I'm curious to know if you're a minister for education and you could make any subject mandatory on the secondary school curriculum or even primary school what would it be and why I would definitely have mindfulness as a mandatory thing you know as a mandatory the other one, it's funny that you might say where I'm saying, well, I th think going forward, it going, what I think is going to be needed more going forward. I know this might sound odd, but things like piano tuning courses, things like how to fix a washing machine, things like how to take apart and put back again an engine practical things you know this is the first year we're starting to see ai actually creeping into the active it's been there a bit there quite mm. a bit but we haven't seen it this is the first year this is a bit like windows has arrived and dos is gone ai mm. is now there we haven't even seen the start of what ai can do uh, for example if i give it to you in the oracle sense three years ago Four years ago, because of COVID, in London, I went to the Oracle event because we're an Oracle NetSuite partner. And Oracle announced for the first time, although they had been doing it for three years prior to that, there are, the Oracle Cloud infrastructure was now an autonomous database. And what that meant actually was for three years, there had been no programmers working on it. Yet it, had, it has upgraded itself. It has protected itself. It has enhanced itself. And they did it for three years before they announced it. So AI was already happening and machine learning was already happening at a very fast rate. And I'm now moved five years since that again. And we're now seeing it creep into our day to day lives with chat GTP and stuff like even predictive text on your phone is AI coming at you in some way. And the more AI jumps in there, the more I think the mind needs to get back to the practicalness of things mm. because all the other stuff we like, why would you need to learn all the capitals of Europe anymore? You know, there's no need. You're not better off by knowing them. You can get them fairly quickly on your phone. 
But the understanding of how things work is more important going forward than the knowledge that just sits out there. So I would reintroduce. I've always, I have this. If you're asking me if I was starting again, I would love to start a thing called Restore. Okay. And Restore for me would be in every decent town, in every decent, in Black Rock, there should be one, in Dundrum, there would be a Restore. And the Restore would be somewhere where you would bring something to get restored. And backing the Restore would be a false warehouse with false employees fixing them and mm. practically doing them because we throw too many things out uh, and we just take for granted everything. And I think that's not good for the world. And I think the more we look at saying, look, well, look, there's nothing really wrong with the radio. Can you just fix it? Uh, all of the stuff of the practicalness of that, I think will become very important as we move yeah. on. Yeah, I think there's a lot of built-in obsolescence as well, where there was a time, say, with radios, you could replace a capacitor resistor. Now it's a radio on a chip. Um, Paul, there was a time you and I could open the bonnet of the car and fix yeah, it. Yeah, sure. How sure. to dry a spark plug. Yeah, by hand manual. And, yep. Yeah. I did so that with I an old Astra Metro I had. <laughs> yeah. Well, your car was better than mine then. Not when I was finished <laughs> with it, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's for sure. I think the kids are missing this. Yeah. You know, the yeah. kids need to pull apart the video game and put it back together again. Yeah. Uh, just to understand how things work. Yeah. No, for sure. It's even down to simple things like changing a tire on a car. So many things that could be. And I see, I think the problem is we always had a, a, a really negative attitude, a poor attitude towards manual type roles. I mean, when I was in school was if you were in the A class, you studied Latin. Uh, if you I were did. in the B class, you studied business. And if you were in the C class, you did woodwork. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, that's not a, that's not, no, I'm not making not, that up. Uh, technical drawing. Yeah. And I had an appreciation for it because my father was a woodwork and mechanical drawing teacher. And I could see what he could do and what I couldn't do because I, I didn't do woodwork. And now I see to my detriment how my life is poor as a result of not getting those skills. Now, I was uh, an electronic guy. I did my, one of my jobs was programming software. So I was in on that level. But I certainly think stuff around the house in terms of repair and lost out a lot because I didn't do those. And yeah. so I'm fully on board. I agree. I wanted to ask you, I, I want you to imagine that you were at that point in your career let's say it's now and you wanted to move on and as i said your team are now going to take over the company and you're there in the canteen or wherever you have those town hall meetings with them and you're going to give them your words of wisdom on how to bring this company forward that, that impart some of those key lessons that you've learned uh, through your career what would be the highlights what would you share with them the things to do and things to avoid um, well, I'd give them definitely one couple of words and those couple of words would be stay relevant. Just stay relevant. And that's everything to do about the evolution of everything. You need to stay relevant. I would have no business if I was selling DOS computers today. So mm. the first thing that I would say to them, stay relevant and look to solve a problem. Don't look to write software look to solve a problem. Sometimes people are very enthusiastic about writing software that doesn't solve a problem. Yeah. And if you're not solving a problem, you're really not solving anything. So, so for me, it's to stay relevant with the technology that exists and look to use that technology to solve problems. Look for the gap in the marketplace or look for the gap in the business process that you can improve. And uh, uh, that sounds contradictory to what I've said about get, you know, why am I automating everything? There are, well, it, in my mind, there are certain tasks and certain activities that when automated are done better. Hmm. Uh, so, so don't focus on, you know, improving the manualness of that, automate that, do it better. Hmm. Now let's look at what the human mind can do creatively 
mm. in another way. But you're way. also so, freeing up resources when you automate something. You're freeing up resources at that business for them to do something else. So you're enabling them to go. Yeah. Well, for example, in the connection software, what the software did was with the volume of transactions that were coming in and the price was wrong on 30 of them, they would go into the little brown folder because in that world, they're actually paying straight away for the goods that come into the store to the wholesaler. So the money that they're due is in these little folders. And when I used to go out early days into the stores, I did, I would ask, well, how many queries do you have or how many transactions do you have on query with the supplier? And uh, it would be Mary or Mick, where's that folder? Uh, and I thought, this is ridiculous. You don't even know the value of credit you're due for errors. So in our software, the software tracks that puts it straight into a folder for them at a push of a button will tell them mm. what they're due in credits and also mm. sends the query automatically back to the supplier. To, so that just helps them. Now, mm. what they're able to do now is focus on making sure those queries are resolved. I, and so you, get to them. You mentioned a moment ago about AI and I have to assume that somebody with your mindset is looking at that in terms of where are the opportunities and where are the threats in your world? What have you come up with? Uh, yeah, the, it's in, that's really interesting. As much as I've said to you about the Oracle cloud infrastructure being autonomous, well, the Oracle database being autonomous, I do see a period of time in our world by where, for a small example of where I see the threats, what we do as a living is kind of, uh, it's an, an anomaly. Uh, we, our companies like ours got into the IT business and business software 20 years ago, because if you started, uh, started a new business, Paul, you'd go down to your accountant 20 years ago and you'd say to him, I need a system. I need an accounting system there. And the first thing he'd say is go and talk to Ray. Uh, I don't do any of those cables and boxes. And when he's got that all in, give me a shout. So we exist because of that. Uh, 20 years First time I actually saw real cloud software, which was NetSuite, Oracle NetSuite. It was the first time, whoa, lightning blow here. There's no hardware. Who's my next competitor is not my competitive other guy down the road. It's the accountancy firm. And the onslaught of that is, is I set up my business. I go down to my accountant and the, I need software to run the business. No problem. I have zero here. I'll set you up. There you are, gone off, gone. So my business is now successful and I need something bigger than a product like a zero. Uh, I actually will think, well, my accountant doesn't do that, but what accountancy firm does big stuff? And I never was in the equation in this new world. So if I take that even a step further with AI, the deliverable of a solution like an automated accounting or an ERP solution in the future can be totally driven by you logging on and the whole thing talking to you, not me. You literally go, I signed in and it will instruct you. It will guide you. It will help you. And I'm saying that I'm out of the gig, but the accountant also needs to watch his spot as well, because this is capable of being done by AI. And that's in my world. So, yeah. so our, the, what is our usefulness and what is our relevancy going forward? That's a real key thing for us to think about. Yeah, I think there's hold. I've been playing with ChatGPT and some of the other tools for a while now. And I think there are whole swathes of professions that are in real trouble unless to your point earlier is stay relevant. They have to kind of figure out where's the ball going to be, not where it is. Copywriters, exactly. for example, I've been playing with some commands and it's amazing what that tool will come up with in terms of copyright material. Uh, or copy written material, I should say. Uh, but there's all other things I could see doctors, specialists being everything, not eliminated, but certainly their role no. significantly attenuated in, in, in the world. And there's many others that I'm not even thinking of because it's our world is so complex. I don't think most of our brains have the ability to imagine where it can go. Uh, like, who would have imagined the world? we inhabit now where we can even do something like this. Think about yeah. when you were growing up and you're in Sing Street yeah. and you'd have a little phone you pick out of your pocket and talk to a satellite yeah. and do something like oh. it was just beyond. It was stuff yeah. of sci-fi. And therefore I think is if the mindset is to stay relevant, 
then you'll figure out the building blocks as you go along. But if you're sitting back... For people in business, the fear I have for people who are currently in business and compete, when the generation, which is the next one comes, begins to start building their business based on these AI tools. So mm. everything they need to know is there. So they can just ask that question and then spend m more of their time where f when we were starting businesses, you know, oh, what do we need to know legally? What do we need to know financially? What do we need to know? They can just ask, Grant, is that all I need to know? Great, I'm off. That their ability to compete with you, we haven't seen it yet. They will be tough competitors. Yeah, no, for sure. So, so there's opportunity, that's where there's some of the threats. Where do you see, from your own perspective, where some of the opportunity is, the short term, because we can't imagine what's going to be in six years time, but maybe six months time, we can say, oh, I could be yeah. doing that in, in my business. Yeah, things have gone slightly full circle uh, in my mind, except if I take just this, the cycle of events in the IT world by where we've gone from mainframe down to uh, PC, and now we've gone back up really to mainframe. When you look at cloud, all you are is linked through too. And then if I take it from a product point of view, we, we had kind of ledgers and then we had accountancy systems and we got that far. Then we had what we would call the uh, business excellence or the, I can't remember the term they used to have it, but the specialist product for manufacturing, the specialist product for service maintenance, the specialist product here, the specialist product there. And that's where we got ourselves into what we call the silo pit because you had a CRM system, you had an accounting system, you had a manufacturing system. ERP jumped that little loop and it tried to bring a lot of that together. Now, what I'm looking at to stay relevant is to identify that we're in a sector, but we're back to finding the specialist ERP piece that sits in the ERP piece. That is part of the overall thing, but addresses specifically that sector. So what I mean by that, we have four pillars of business that we have knowledge in. Retail, manufacturing, e-distribution, e as I call it now, and field service or mm. service-oriented companies. We were, over the last seven years, building our presence and our knowledge into that as a reason to be in that. I think as I move forward with the business now, we've got not only to tell people that we're knowledgeable about being in that sector, but we actually have, and here's the product, Here's the physical thing. Not that we can tell you how to mold a system that's going to, we actually have mm. a product that sits there mm. in the environment that specializes in that. Mm. We need mm. that kind of specific because the ERP solutions have gathered the CRM piece, they've gathered the finance piece, they've gathered the warehouse piece, they've gathered the manufacturing piece. Some are specialists at this, some are specialists, but we, you need to have now, I think the built-in product. So I think oh, oh, for, the, for the cloud solutions we're going to bring to the marketplace, our focus will be on, it's actually going to narrow, narrow our focus down, but I think we need to get these really correct mm. to move yeah. on. So rather than just saying we're ERP, we're ERP in a particular space yeah. because we have a full solution to it. That's an ERP full solution. It's hard to see. It's hard to be... Every, it's hard for one piece of software to be everything for everybody. Actually, it's not possible, to be quite mm. honest. If you take CRM as solutions, all the CRM solutions that exist in current ERP solutions at the moment, Salesforce, because it's a dedicated solution, would be way better in CRM than any of them. Mm. So if you're going to go and say you're in the sales automation route, then you need to make sure that you have the equivalent of a sales force sitting at the end of your product and that, that you can say, I can compete here and I'm yeah. relevant. I'm able to do it. And that's what we'll be looking for over the next few years. Yeah. That makes sense. So form it, yeah, it's like at the full circle, it's your niching down again. I wanted to ask you, oh, it's gone straight out of my head now. Oh, I know what it was. I wanted to ask you as a Gen Xer, what have you found that you've had to change about yourself, adapting yourself to lead and manage Millennials and Gen Zers, or lead and motivate it. Maybe it's probably a better question. I, I know this sounds odd. Empathy is the word I would throw to you, and what I mean by it is their world is different to the world I grew up in. Their working from home has even been a better emphasizer of this to me because 
Since working at home, my own daughter, who's between houses, has been living with me. I have forgotten how busy their lives are. The kids, the after-school things, the shopping, the thing, how their busyness is so busy uh, and how it's much faster than our busyness was in those days. So I know all of my team have a whole load of other pressures coming at them, even worse now that they're working at home because mm -hmm. other things are happening to them. Like, so like, like what? Give me some sense of some of those other pressures that you're seeing that they have. Well, well, just very simple things like, like we, when you went to work, when you went to your office or you went to wherever you went to work, there weren't other distractions when you got there. There wasn't going to be a phone call from, say, the school, knowing that you're only down the road in your house. Yeah. You know, if I give you an example of that, that happens because we've quite a young, uh, a young, young, a young group of people. There are, the kids get sick or the kids. I know what would happen in the normal tense in an office, in an office. What would happen is the call would come, the person would then go, oh, how am I going to tell Ray now? I need to. And he'd spend an hour thinking how he'd build up the excuse. Uh, and then, then he'd come in to me and then he'd be under pressure to get where I more or less say to them, look, if you get a call to go down and collect the kid because sick, go down and collect the kid because sick. I know that I'm trusting that you're over 21. If you need to get X, Y done, you'll actually give that back to me. Whether it's next tomorrow morning, you get up at eight and you'll start that hour earlier just to get done much in, if you work with that, if you work with their world and allow them the flexibility. And it's kind of weird that COVID has delivered to us something that these people have been crying out for because mm. business has been sucking them and sucking them. Like, you know, if you work in Google or you work in Facebook, or you, they have the canteen and the free food and, you know, it's, my dad was a Guinness worker. It reminds me of that. If you were a Guinness worker, that was your life, your swimming pool, your food, your drink. You were a Guinness worker, yeah. uh, your house. Uh, so I could see that the younger generation who have been there and are doing the kind of going, I need to step back a bit. I need to be given. So I like to try and give them and to try and under, be in their shoes and empathize with what they've got to allow them. And you can only do this. And I find Paul, both with a customer and I have, I always say to myself, I have two customers. I have the customers I give stuff to and I have the customers I get something from and they're mm. customers. And I need to make sure I'm doing the best for both worlds. Uh, and a big word in the middle of all of that is trust. That's you interesting. Trust yeah. And that, you can't give trust. Yeah. You won't get it. Yeah. That's what a lot of the, IT company or the technology, the SaaS type companies, when you talk to sales managers there, they call servant leadership or I should say leaders in general. It's interesting that there's that mindset of employees are not my employees. They're my customers. They're, they're my clients and I'm there to take care of them as you would any good client. Deliver. And so long as there's a, as a positive, productive, symbiotic relationship there, it works. And the other thing that struck me about what you're saying was, and I think what's changed is when you give trust, when you empower people, two things happen. First of all, most people step up to that. And in return, it creates a stronger connection between you. It's no longer this parental parent-child relationship, but it's adult relationship. In fact, you use the words, they're over 21, which is to me is a recognition of the fact these are adults. And when you allow them to HubSpot have a wonderful saying when it comes to empowering employees, I love it, is use good judgment. They don't have any rules or policies around a lot of things other than Absolutely. the yeah. law. It's yeah. just, you know, if you want, if you want to expense something, use good judgment. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, and I, I think sure. most people, when you treat them like that, not alone will they step up to it, they probably give you more back. I think they do. I think mm. they do. And you know, I, I really don't think anybody in my place sees me as the role of MD. Just another bloke who's in the job, yeah. to, who does his bits yeah. and every one of them can talk to me. Yeah. You know, Ray, and I have a relationship different with every one of them. I'm conscious of time, Ray. I have two very quick okay. questions before I let you go. Yeah. One, your house is on fire. Uh, your family are safe, pets your phone, of course, computer, they're all safe. 
you have time to run back in and grab one item and rescue it, what would it be? <laughs> My Camino cane. Okay. It's the stick I bring with me yeah. and have brought with me. It has been on the journey with me. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I'm not big into things that of value. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I have. I don't have a Rolex. I wouldn't even buy a Rolex watch if you yeah. paid me. That doesn't excite me. I there yeah. has to be something that has to be something that's been along the road with you. I get it. No, I mean, it makes sense. And then, so final question: When your time on this planet is done, and somebody decides to write a book about your about your life, what would you like the title of that book to be? Not slightly cliched, but he every time he was down, he got up. I like that. Yeah, there's a real resonance about that. I like that. This it's it speaks of grit and determination and resilience, which uh, we all could do with some more. So yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, you do have to fight for things, Paul. You do have yeah. to. They don't come. You have to fight for mm. them. Yeah. And the yeah. way you fight is the way you live your life. And that, that, that's like the line in Rocky. It's not how many times you go down that counts. It's how many times yeah, you get well, back up. Was the old, yeah, never judge a person by how many times they go down, but how yeah. many times they get back up. Yeah. And I, I mean, the Americans are very good at it. We're kind yeah. of not so good over here. I, have, I think we're getting way, way better at it. So. But traditionally, yeah. people wanted to see you go down. <laughs> Look, that seems like a great place to leave it, Ray. Thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast Thank today. You, Paul.